Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome. We're so glad to have you with us here this evening on Ask Herbal Health Expert Susan Weed, a two-hour radio show each Tuesday night. Herbal medicine is people's medicine, simple, safe, effective. Please bring your curiosity and health questions. Susan will enlighten, surprise, and delight you. I know most of you know Susan Weed already. She's my mom, so I know her. But for those of you who have not yet met Susan, I'd like to share, she is the author of the Wise Woman Herbal Series, wonderful books on women's health and herbal medicine, including Wise Woman Herbal for the Childbearing Year, Breast Cancer Breast Health! Exclamation point, The Wise Woman Way, Healing Wise, The Wise Woman Herbal, New Menopausal Years, The Wise Woman Way, down there, sexual and reproductive health, the wise woman way. And abundantly well, seven medicines, the wise woman way. The newest book in the wise woman herbal series. So exciting. In addition to being the editor at Ashtree Publishing and writing her books, Susan is the director of the Wise Woman Center in Woodstock, New York. The Wise Woman Center is open to the public on appointment-only basis. She offers weekend workshops, intensives, and apprenticeships throughout the season. Susan is also available to you online via wisewomanmentor.com. There you can go and view her weekly e-zine. You can subscribe to receive a notification via email each week, or you could join her mentorship program. Susan also offers distance learning correspondence courses and online courses at thewisewomanschool.com. Join us there for colorful, instructive, easy video courses, including Easy Herbal Medicine with Susan Weed, Happy Needs, a cancer diagnosis, adaptogens for long life, and abundantly well companion course, wisewomanschool.com. You can also just go to her website, susanweed.com, where you will find thousands of pages online with recipes, articles, art features, and so much more. Well, for now, let's see what Susan has to share with us this evening. Thank you, and welcome, Susan. Thank you so much, Justine, and welcome, Sarah Ellen. How are you this evening? I am wonderful, Susan. How are you this evening? Oh, I am so enjoying my snowdrops. I missed getting to see them for my birthday, often if we're snow-free, 
in the first bit of February, I get to see the snowdrops because they don't really care. They'll come up anyhow, but we were covered enough in snow that it wasn't until the melts of the past week or so that we've actually been, the snowdrops have been able to, they just, it seemed like they came up and burst into bloom overnight. Wow. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> nice. So I, I planted a bed of early blooming spring flowers for Justine's birthday, which was just this weekend, March 14th. But uh, it's on the shady side of the house, so they usually don't bloom for her birthday, unfortunately. We have a very special guest tonight, and it's a guest that you have all been hoping that you would get to meet. And that guest is a student of life who cherishes the opportunity to live with awareness and experience the wholeness of being alive. She lives at home in the Barrington Hills of Illinois with a husband, dogs, cats, goats, and chickens, and intends each day to know and remember her inherent connection with the earth and all the magic that surrounds her. She's going to be talking to us tonight about her green ally, which is poison ivy. And who is this special guest? Sarah Ellen. We've been waiting for you to come out from behind your screen a little bit, Sarah Ellen, and share more of your story with you. And I am so excited that you're going to do that tonight. That's going to be at 9 o'clock, everybody. So stick with us until then or come back at 9 o'clock to hear from Sarah Ellen, my wonderful host here who pulls all the switches and gets people uh, to talk to me and um, find out more about Poison Ivy. Yes, and actually, um, I am excited about this as well. And I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that I'm not. I believe that our guest tonight is actually Rachel Carlavalli, and I believe I'm going to be sharing next week with everyone. Oh, next week. Oh, 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 you know, that's possible. But I'm excited about you. I'm very excited about you next week. And uh, let me go over here. And uh, Rachel Carlavalli. Here we go. Rachel Carlavalli. Who is the founder and director of the Ganjasana Plant Medicine School, where she leads cannabis yoga ceremonies and um, trains people on regenerative farming and permaculture and biodynamics, and we're going to expect to focus on ganja. So next week, Sarah Ellen, and this week at 9 o'clock, Rachel Carnavale. Yeah, fabulous. What have you been up to this week? Oh, it's been a lovely week here. We've had temperatures almost touching 50. I have been chasing hens around the yard primarily. The roosters and the goats are staying in place, but the hens are very curious, and so I have been uh, keeping up with them and learning uh, hen containment. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm enjoying Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The thing about hen containment is look low. Yes. <laughs> right. you got to get down to their level of what is 
constitutes a good way to go. <laughs> yes, invariably so. <laughs> All right, we've been we've been looking at the goats and saying the same thing because when there's snow on the ground, um, we don't have to do an active goat watch, right? We can let them out, and they will simply hang out around the barn. They're not going to go worry the motorists out on the roadway. Mm. But now that the snow has melted, the clock is ticking as to. Uh, when we're going to have to pick up active goat watch again and be out there with them every moment that they are out to prevent them from terrorizing the motorists, which they love to do. <laughs> they know how to have fun. <laughs> that they do. Um, and your goats, do you keep your goats fenced? We, this is our first season with our goats. Right now we have pasture fencing and um, uh, have a little bit of wire mesh um, over the pasture fence and they're being contained, but that I assume will be short lived. So we do have some heavier (laughs) duty thing that'll be going up and then we'll see. I imagine I'll be watching them quite a bit, which I look forward to. (laughs) Yes, it's such a delight to be out with them. So I, I pulled up all my fencing eventually and said, this is, you know, I would much rather spend my time with the goats than with the fence. Yes. Yeah. Yes. They are. Yeah. yeah. They're very special. And it's it's been a pleasure to be with them for the few months that they've been with us. And I'm still looking forward to them with the green fields and the warm weather. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I um say that they are the perfect antidote to anxiety and depression. Ah, oh, I I feel that. <laughs> yeah. They have such yeah. a joy of life. Mhm. They do. They truly do. Yeah, we'll be having baby goats fairly soon. Mm. Oh, who's going to be a mama? That. Um, Michelle. And Arish Kagal. Wow. Yeah. I will congratulate them when they are successful. Excellent. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And it's Farmer John and his uh, assistants that, of course, gets the congratulations on getting them to be pregnant. <laughs> and very, very unsuccessful in our quest to get them pregnant. Farmer John was able to nice. be successful there where we had not been. Hurrah. Yeah. Yeah. Do we have any questions tonight? Well, we have lots of callers on the line, and uh, we have one caller who has pressed one to let us know that they have a question for you. And I'd like to remind everyone else on the line and listening, if you have a question tonight, please press 1 to let us know so that you can come live on the line with Susan. Our first question is from the 650 area code. You are live on the air with Susan. Oh, hi, Susan. I'm looking forward to that question about poisoned ivy. Woo. Yeah, next week. Yeah, I live where there's poison oak, but I think it'll be the same kind of... uh, It'll be just the same. You're exactly right. Mm-hmm. I had a few sh- kind of short questions. Well, I have a question about violet. I was okay. wondering if you could use the leaves 
of the violet in honey and in salads like you would the flowers? Yes. But it's quite And they're different. not too mucilaginous for honey. I was say, but it's very different. It's kind of like okra. It's going to be really, you know, like, slimy. Mm-hmm. Ooh, so if that, that's okay with you, then that's okay. And if it's not okay, then it's not okay. But yeah. it w- wouldn't hurt you in any way. Yeah, that sounds good. I was also wondering if it would tend to get moldy or something because it was mucilaginous, but it sounds like it wouldn't. Well, the honey itself is a fairly strong preservative. And so mm-hmm. long as there's no violet leaf sticking up above the level of the honey, mm-hmm. then there's no access for molds to grow. And I find with most of my honeys, the plant material rises to the top. It's all soaked in honey, but it you have more of a plant material on the top and the honey more on the bottom, but there's no dry leaves or dry plant that's sticking up over the top. Yes. And that's what it should be. Okay. All right. Thank you. You know, I have another question that might be a little more complicated, but I've been working kind of with a woman who's a Pilates teacher and trying to show me more how to strengthen my core by just um, pulling my muscles up. And she's describing it as doing a, like a kegel and just kind of pulling up like that and holding it more when you walk to give like a basket so that you can strengthen your lower back. Have you ever heard of doing that? I've talked to a lot of women who have made the pelvic floor their life study. Mm -hmm. It's certainly an incredible array of muscles that in the upright human have to function in a way that is quite against their evolutionary understanding. So the pelvic floor in a human is parallel to the ground, and it's designed to be perpendicular to the ground. So your pelvic floor now has to prevent your pelvic organs from prolapsing as opposed to... Simply acting as a structural support for sphincters. Mm-hmm. So it's not really possible to simply contract your pelvic floor muscles continuously. Any muscle that contracts continuously is in a cramp, right? Yeah. So what most women that I've talked to who know about the pelvic floor suggest is that you do some pelvic floor clenches, 
because if we don't want to call them after a man, Mr. Kegel, who was all for women, I have nothing against Mr. Kegel, uh, <laughs> but if you want to call them something other than his name, uh, pelvic floor clenches that you do some while you're lying in bed before you get up and then um, do some when you go to the toilet or when you're in the shower or when you have breakfast and just, you know, get, you know, a fair amount in, in the morning and then forget about it for the rest of the day. Mm-hmm. Unless something really triggers you to think, oh, I really need to engage my pelvic floor here. What kind of work do you generally do? Um, well, I was a nurse, a registered nurse in my career, but I do gardening and walking, and I'm retired now. Right. Um, so you're, you are doing activities that already engage your pelvic floor. Mm-hmm. When you garden, you probably squat rather than bend over. Mm-hmm. That's one of the best ways to engage your pelvic floor and your core known. Mm-hmm. So, there's nothing wrong with what she's saying. It's certainly a good idea to have a stronger core, and it's a good idea especially to have your pelvic floor muscles be strong. But perhaps the interpretation or the way she's thinking about doing it isn't quite as clear as it needs to be for someone to benefit from it. Yeah, it seems like odd that, you know, well, in walking, you know, a lot of times, especially if you're going downhill, you engage those muscles just to keep everything, you know, able to go down the hill. Yeah. You wouldn't engage it all the time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. More as a, like, a protection. And this was for working in the the sacrum for lower back problems. And she's absolutely right. If there are difficulties, pain in the back, then strengthening the belly muscles will alleviate it. Mm -hmm. Do you have any other suggestions, like for maybe leg exercises or things like that 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 are commonly done for... You know, one of the best core strengthening exercises is Tai Chi. Uh-huh. And that's yeah. partly because it's done without any force. Mm-hmm. And also because I'm a very firm believer in benefit from continuity of exercise. Mm-hmm that I think you get more from doing something once a week for 50 years than every day for a similar amount of days. Mm-hmm. Which would be what, 50 times 50? Yeah. So that we want to choose the exercise that we do to be what we can conceive of ourselves as doing in our 80s or 90s. So Tai Chi is excellent for your legs, core, back, balance. 
course, there are numerous different kinds and styles of Tai Chi, and it's hard to even recommend. It yeah. used to be that I could say what would really make a difference is you find a teacher that you really feel comfortable with. But nowadays, I guess you just have to try a few programs and see if you fit with any of them on the, on your screen. Exactly. I was thinking that there's no live uh, right. Yeah. Especially if you're new to them. Sometimes they'll take people they're already familiar with. But Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Well put. Thank you. Green blessings. Thank you. Good night. Blessings. All right. Our next caller is calling in from the 919 area code. You are live on the air with Susan. Hello, Susan. Hi. Um, I have a question about uh, blood sugar levels, uh, blood glucose, A1C. Um, I recently had a physical and my A1C came in at 11, um, very high. And I was wondering what I could do in terms of herbal uh, remedies rather than, um, chemical remedies. What level would they like to see it be at? (laughs) Uh, they'd like to see it down in the 5.6 range as a maximum. Okay. So it's about double. Pretty much, yes. Right. All right. So, and they told you that what we're talking about here is what's called insulin insulin resistance, yes? Correct. So, could you characterize your diet for me? Um, my daughter... Uh, has a farm and we get greens from her and we get pasture raised meat from her. Um, uh, So I have a couple of eggs in the morning for breakfast. Um, I have probably some of her pork sausage and some veggies uh, for lunch and maybe a, a pork chop or some ground beef with veggies uh, and a big salad from her farm uh, in the evenings. All right, tell me about those veggies. How are those veggies prepared? Um, mostly in a salad. Um, There's your um, problem right there. Really? Yeah. You might as well be eating white bread and meat. That's all your body is registering. It's not registering the vegetables at all. Okay. In order for your body to get any nutrition from plants, those plants have to be broken down. And for plants, that means they have to be subjected to heat for a sufficient length of time, frozen, fermented, dehydrated, or marinated in oil. So you're talking about eating greens from your daughter's farm. That's wonderful. That's so good to keep your blood sugar down. But those greens have to be cooked for at least an hour. Okay. Not eaten raw. All right. Uh, One other thing that I'm doing is she's she's helping us prepare infusions, 
and we're doing an I'm so glad to of hear that. Great. Of country yeah, and wheat straw and linden and red clover and stinging nettle. So my wife and I are, are preparing these infusions uh, every day, one of, the, one of the five different things. Um, and then we drink. And you've been doing uh, that for how long? Uh, a month and a half, maybe. A month and a half, okay. And have you gone back to have your blood sugar tested in that time, or are you testing it at home? Um, no, this is actually the blood uh, test was a week ago, and um, that's after a month and a half of doing of drinking these infusions on a daily basis, uh-huh. uh, rotating between the different comfrey, wheat straw, linden, red clover, uh, singing nettle. Yeah. Oh, straw. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, so it's okay. Um, it took me a minute to, to guess what you were talking about. <laughs> so you started drinking the infusions just as a matter of good health and then discovered at an annual checkup that your blood sugar was high. Correct. Okay. Can, I would say that continuing with the nourishing herbal infusions is definitely um, going to help. And starting to cook your vegetables what I usually ask people to do, just to kind of get it in their heads, is to avoid eating anything raw for a while. Okay. Nothing on this planet eats raw food. There is no nutritional value of any kind in raw food. I know there are people out there who propose raw food, but you know they wind up in the hospital. <laughs> Well, I guess that's why cows have four stomachs, so that it can ferment inside. Well, that's kind of right, except that cows don't have F-O-U-R stomachs. They have one F-O-R-E stomach. They have a four stomach. Okay. I know, because I keep goats. Okay. Yeah, and the four stomach is called the rumen, and you're absolutely right. They ferment it. They don't even bother to chew anything. And ruminants are very successful. They're buffalo, right? They're elk, mm-hmm. moose, right? Wow, fermenting your food, that really works. Okay. Right, so it doesn't have I to be also... It can be fermented or it can be frozen. Right, and well, so when I say we, when I say no raw, I mean that you're not going to eat raw fruit. You're going to eat only frozen fruit or cooked fruit. Wow. What about cinnamon? I've I've heard that cinnamon will help reduce um, blood sugar. If you're willing to eat upwards of a tablespoon of powdered cinnamon a day, that could help. Okay. Most I'm people in. aren't. It's a lot of cinnamon. Right? <laughs> it is, it is. But it's a lot of cinnamon. But but you what you didn't mention and that we should we should talk about is you didn't mention any grains in your diet. Do you eat brown rice? Do you eat whole wheat? Um, yes, whole wheat with bread. Uh, you have whole, whole wheat you have bread, actual but, whole wheat bread that's 100% whole wheat? Oh, gosh. I don't know. 
Well, what I want you to do, the next time you eat a piece of bread, while you're eating it, I want you to read the ingredients list on the loaf of bread. And if it's more than six ingredients, I want you to stop eating that. Right? Okay. Yep. I get that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing that we do eat There's is, nothing is wrong rice, with bread, but it's white needs rice. not to have, you know, all kinds of stuff thrown in it. And the reason mm-hmm. that I say 100% whole wheat is that the way they throw a lot of stuff in it, um, including tree fiber, interestingly enough, is to call it like, you know, 14-grain bread. <laughs> and you think, oh, this is a ritzy bread. No, this is, a, you know, wrecked bread. So just 100% whole wheat, you know, water, flour, yeast, salt, maybe a little sweetener or oil, but that's it. Okay. More than that, and it's not bread anymore. So whole grain brown rice. And you can get, you know, uh, Uncle Ben's brown rice. It's not like you have to, you know, be a macrobiotic chef sweating over the rice pot. You can get instant brown rice in the supermarket. But you want to really go toward, with your grains and with your vegetables, what you want are things that are going to release for a long, slow time in your body. The raw things just are like a burst of sugar on your cells, and they make your cells close up. Okay. So once you start, you know, Eliminating the raw food in your diet, getting your vegetables really well cooked, getting some whole grains to hold the blood sugar level, eating your cinnamon if you want to, continuing with your nourishing herbal infusions. In South America, they're finding that stinging nettle reduces blood sugar levels usually within about six months. And they're using it as a primary, primary cure. Five more months to go then. I'm in. All right. Yeah. Susan, thank you. I appreciate it. So welcome. Green blessings. Good night. Same to you. Good night. All right. We have three callers that have pressed one to let us know that they have a question. And our next caller is calling from the 845 area code. From the 845, you're live on the air with Susan. Thank you. Hi, Susan. Hi, Tatiana. Yes. How are you? I am. I am. Uh, my goodness, allergic. I You're allergic. <laughs> You're yeah. allergic. Well, I usually uh, uh, in spring I do I do get inflammations, and I was told it's grass and trees, and I don't know. Stuff like that, not from flowers, but anyway, I'm. No, no, no so you're wrong. It's sore. flowers. It's tree flowers and grass flowers. Uh, uh, okay. Okay, but, but, it, but it is it's pollen from the flowers. It's the boy flowers, of course. Everybody's saying it's still winter, but I am hurting. My nose is is sore. My throat is sore. Not my eyes, and I'm just coughing. Not. Coughing, the sneezing a little, 
but mm-hmm. it's fear. I had my headache. I have a bad headache, and of course, oh. I don't take medication. Right. And uh, I was under the impression that all the herbs that I'm taking are, are going to make me more resilient, and and I am, of course. Uh, with my heart and with my blood pressure, uh, I feel a lot better, and I'm not taking any medication, not even uh, an, uh, an aspirin. I'm not taking that, and for that I'm grateful. But I thought that maybe I will be healthy enough to pass the season without... Uh, I, I know I can't see the cat, you know, uh, I go to my daughter for dinner. They have this lovely cat and the doggy. And when I I feel like so bad without the cat, when the cat is around me, I'm just really in bad shape. I hear you. So it sounds, of course, it's way too early for trees to be blooming, even, you know, and the earliest ones are not blooming yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's certainly not tree pollen. And grass actually doesn't start blooming until later in the summer. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, not that. But dog and cat dander, absolutely. Sounds like it could be what's setting you off. And it's no, I always... I didn't see them as... so weeks. curious to us, isn't it, as to what it is that causes that intense histamine reaction, that intense reaction on the part of our bodies to protect us against something. Yeah. So, to me, that's what's really interesting, is that this is a protection. This Mm -hmm. isn't, you know, it's very uncomfortable and it seems it's just really wrong. But I ask myself, what what am I being protected from? Mm-hmm. And what can I do to make myself safer so that I, my body doesn't need to raise such a ruckus for me? Mm-hmm. Where can I take this over and take this on and be the one who does it rather than, you know, it's so easy in this kind of situation to feel um, like the victim of one's own body. Like, oh, you know, you're making my eyes, you know, and you body are doing this, you know, and we, we do, we kind of dissociate from ourselves. And if we can turn that around and say, okay, thank you, you're protecting me. Tell me more. What can I do? Where's, you know, where's this threat? Is the cat really a threat? And I've just been amazed at the kinds of things that people come up with when they kind of do this line of inquiry. And they, and they you know, come back to me and they say, well, yes, actually, the cat is a big threat because in this other lifetime that I got in touch with, I was mauled by a lion. I'm like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> well, get down with Sekhmet and get it, like, straightened out, okay? You know? <laughs> But we're all, we're such storied and mythological beings, and so much of what goes on with us is is well beyond just the um, 
I have made my body so healthy now that nothing can touch it. No, that's not why we're in a body. So, I think that you have tools at hand to help you to relieve the symptoms, like Usha root tincture, yes? What tincture? Usha root. I don't know that name. Okay. Legusticum porteros. O-S-H-A, Osha. Uh, Osha, O-H-H-O. O-S-H-A-O, Sha. O. O-S-H-A. Osha. Osha teacher? Root teacher, yes. Root teacher. And what it does is to um, tell the um, cells that they shouldn't absorb absorb that histamine that's running around. Mm-hmm. And so your s- symptoms of having too much histamine, like the swelling, subside and very quickly. I've used it when um, twice now when someone has gone into anaphylactic shock or going into anaphylactic shock. One woman was pretty blue in the lips. And other people have told me as well that they um, have used it rather than epinephrine to prevent anaphylactic shock. So it's pretty strong in terms of um, having the cells not absorb histamine is how I explain it. But the effect does not last for a long, long time. It will wear off. And it's kind of a, it's not an antihistamine. It doesn't turn off histamine. Histamine continues to be produced, but the cells don't absorb it. Mm -hmm. How much should I take that? Eventually what happens is that your body kind of figures out that a trick is being played on it, and it doesn't work so well. So what I say to people is, here's osha root tincture. It's not curative. It's symptomatic. And you use it just when you need to. Like, you really want to go and visit your daughter and pet the cat. You're going to take some osha root tincture with you, and you're going to take some before you walk in the house. You're going to take four or five drops. Mm-hmm. And you're going to take it as often as you need to when you're in the house to control any symptoms. Mm-hmm. So I do but, continue but to not, But it's not curative, and mm-hmm. the more you take it, the less well it works. No, I usually go for the minimum. I, I have yeah. a strong reaction to anything. Yes, anything. So. So you don't need a lot of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I it, continue with It gives with you the opportunity team. to do those things that you want to and also just to know um, that you have an ally that can ease up those symptoms at any time that you need to do. Yes, that's a wonderful idea. But I continue the infusions and my regular motherwort and hawthorn as usual. They they do not conflict with us. Not at all. Uh-huh. All right. 
uh, am I supposed not to eat when I take the the drops, or it doesn't matter? It's not matter at all. Herbs are food. Mm-hmm. So, no, I was asking about the osha. If osha is an herb. It's a food. It's a root, like yeah, a carrot. So, so I buy the tincture like at sunflower. That's certainly one place to get it. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that Catskill Mountain Herbals, mm-hmm. um, you got, which you can uh, find online, sells it. Red Moon Herbs, I believe, sells it. Mm-hmm. Osha is a very interesting plant. It's related to Dong Kwai, carrot, including wild carrot, mm. celery. Oh, I love celery. Roll, fennel, <laughs> coriander. Uh-huh. It's a very interesting plant family. Some, you know, poison hemlock. Some really wonderful plants in the family and some awful plants in the family. Dong Kwai, Angelica. Right. So, um, and Osha actually grows in very special places and often mingled with poison hemlock. So you have, you have when you're digging roots, you better really know what you're doing. It grows pretty far away from people, which is why I use such low doses of it, mm-hmm. um, because I respect that that plant is saying to me by growing far away from me that I should use it only for emergencies, only for times when I have great need, mm-hmm. uh-huh. and that I should use small amounts of it, because usually it doesn't grow in huge patches, although it does like to grow in little colonies where you find one, there's likely to be others. It usually grows at elevations over seven or 8,000 feet in the Rocky Mountains. Mm-hmm. So you have really have to be up there to be looking at OSHA. And I want to thank Michael Moore, the wonderful herbalist of the desert southwest, and it does grow all the way down into the Rockies through the southwest, but again at great elevations. Uh, for really bringing um, OSHA and OSHA's abilities to the uh, the site of um, herbalists and many many modern herbalists today um, use OSHA because of Michael Moore's teaching and his it's kind of like the herb in the same way that I like rediscovered and brought Echinacea into widespread use. Michael Moore did the same with OSHA. Oh, okay. Thank you so much, Susan. You're welcome. Green blessings. Green blessings. Good night. night. All right. I'd like to remind everyone listening, if you have a question, please press 1 to let us know that you would like to come live on the line and speak with Susan. Our next caller is calling from the 207 area code. From the 207, you're live on the air with Susan. Hi, Susan. Hi. I am calling because um, I am 41 years old and I have two daughters, and currently I'm not doing any, um, I'm not doing preventative birth control. Um, What I mean by that is I'm not taking birth control pills or I don't have an IUD except um, the rhythm, which is 80% probably efficate. And um, I am calling because... I was wondering what you think of the surgery of tubal litigation. Like, uh, what I have heard from, like, as far as cons is like, well, if you want to have, an, again, another 
child. That's really one of the drawbacks. And um, there are, com- although they're rare, there are some complications. So I'm, I'm just curious, as your take, because I know you say surgery is kind of like the last thing that we should do for medicine. And um, I just want to hear your thoughts, because I don't want to do an IUD. I've done IUD before, and I can't do birth control pills um, because my mom suffers from blood clotting, and I also don't want to be taking hormones. I've never met a woman who is happy that she had her tubes tied. What do you mean by that? I never, because what do you mean they're not happy? I mean that they regret that they chose surgery to deal with a temporary problem. You're how old? 41. You're going to have surgery when you're not going to be fertile within 10 years? Right, and that's the thing. It's it's like I know. Temporary problem. That's what I mean. It's a temporary problem. This is not a permanent problem that you have to solve. It's a temporary problem. Yeah, I'm just. And in many cases, these women are in chronic pelvic pain since the surgery. Yeah, that's. You know, that's one thing that that puts me at, at, at edge, like what if there is side effects? Because I spoke to a girl yesterday, and she's, she's pretty young, and she seems happy about it. She was like, yep, I never want a kid, best choice. And she, like, I was like, so did it hurt afterwards? And she's like, yeah, I, you know, it hurt to pee, but she's like, now it's fine. So, like, I mean, she didn't sound unhappy. She sounded happy. And she's how old right now? Um, I think she's 29. Mm-hmm. I have met quite a few women who woke up one morning in their mid to late 30s and went, I want a child. And when she wakes up at that age and wants a child, she's already made it impossible. I'm not saying that what you would do would make it impossible for you and that you're pretty sure right now that you don't want any more children. And I certainly don't want to, you know, bring unpleasant images to mind. But certainly I have counseled women who through the chaos of the universe have lost beloved husbands and through the blessing of the universe found another partner who loves them very much and then they wanted to have a child together it happens to make a permanent X across our future I don't think is the safest best choice so I hear you about the rhythm method and I also know that Robin Rose Bennett 
has done some very interesting work with carrot seed, wild carrot seed, as an effective birth control, especially used with the rhythm method. Now, when you say rhythm method, are you actually taking basal body temperature in the morning? I am not taking the temperature. I just really follow, like, I I could tell when I'm ovulated based on um, the fluid on, you know, down there. And uh, so, no, no basal. Mm-hmm. And basically, you know, it's, it's more of like, um, I don't know if I could say this, um, uh, making sure that the finish line is not inside. Mm-hmm which is pretty meaningless because there can yeah. be there can be yeah. sperm in pre-ejaculate fluid. Right, and and that's that's why like I'm just concerned because I don't want to have to like make a mistake where like I'm 42 or 43 and end up pregnant and then have to like have an abortion or something, you know? So I'm just like, what are my options, you know, he's like, like, do I do abortion or do I do tubal? Like, now, you said that mm-hmm. your mother has blood clots. Can you tell me a little about that? Is your mother a smoker? No, she's not. She's actually not a, never smoked, never drank alcohol. She just has um, lupus, like the um, anti-immune, autoimmune. Yes. With her blood. And then once she had lupus, she started getting blood clots. Yeah. Uh-huh. So has a doctor said that that means that you should not take birth control pills? Um. Yeah, like the doctor was like, well, since your mom suffered from that, and I was on birth control pills for like over 10 years, like from uh-huh. 18 to, like from 18 to 30 years old, I was on birth control pills, the very uh-huh. low doses, and I loved it. Mm-hmm. When I decided to have my my daughters, I I went off, and then I haven't used any um, form of birth control since. Mm-hmm. So, Robin Rose Bennett, two N's, two T's. Robin Rose Bennett, check out the work she's done with wild carrot seed. The difficulty for right now, for this very moment, is that um, wild carrot seed in general isn't commercially available, and when it is, it's very expensive. So you'll probably need to harvest your own, and you usually can't harvest your own until the autumn. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about some months away, but um, it's something you could think about and get ready for if you decide that you do, in fact, want to do that. For you, like, do you feel like a woman who has her tubes cut, like, that's just, like, impeding, like, for a woman to be connected to, like, everything, you know, like the uterus and, like, the fallopian tubes and, like, just the rhythms of our bodies, like, because some people say, no, like, you still have your very, like, your ovaries and, like, it doesn't, like, you still bleed normal, like, doesn't cause menopause. That's all that is absolutely, absolutely true. I cannot tell you why it seems to be so disruptive to women. I 
can't tell you what what the reason is, whether it's the actual burning or tying or cutting of that, whether there's um, some damage to something when that is done that we don't actually see or know or understand. But I think it's telling that so many women become addicted to opioids because they are given them after this kind of surgery. Which, in fact, a recent study has found that gabapentin, for instance, is absolutely ineffective at relieving pelvic pain after pelvic surgery. Yeah, I know that. I know that pill very well because I know somebody that takes it. They're addicted to that really bad. Yeah. And that is what's usually given after the kind of surgery you're talking about. Mm. Well, thank you for answering with your sincere response. I appreciate it. It wasn't like, you know, it's something that I'm like looking into and it does, like I have like the shivers in my body, like just thinking of like having to have surgery. My body's like, ah, you know, like. Ah. Yeah, so, you know, maybe it's time to set up an altar to the menopause goddess and say, come soon. <laughs> My okay. sister did that at your age. She said, what is with this? Stop already. She said, I don't need this. We're not having more jewelry. Just cut it out. <laughs> but I do like, Yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe <laughs> I need to do an altar where I tell the souls out there, hey, I am not open for this. <laughs> not open for business. Yeah. <laughs> you come here, you're gonna get killed. Like I'm serious. Like <laughs> Oh my God. Thank you so much. Thank you. I know that that you, you mean well and I know I could trust you and I appreciate you listening to me. I know you have very little time for your guest that's coming, somebody else is on the line, so thank you. I had another question on our call next week. Thank you. Free blessings. Good night. Talk to you next week. <laughs> okay, bye bye. All right. At this time, we have one caller that has pressed one to let us know that they have a question. And the caller is calling from the 352 area code. From the 352, you are live with Susan. Hello, Susan. It's Carol from Nashville, Tennessee. Hi, Carol. Hi, Susan. I have a very specific question. Because I, we have, my family had a little gathering, we were talking about this, but here it is. Can a country claim certain plants belonging to its own country to the point that DNA barcodes or markers are needed as legal proof for those particular plants? Well, in order to, yeah, answer, like, like, order to answer that, we have to think legalese. So, legal ease. Legal ease, yes. Can As in this ease. Can a country be said to own a plant? If that plant is a cultivated plant, for instance, 
maca, which doesn't grow wild, but is a cultivated plant, then the answer is yes. In the same way that Monsanto owns the seeds of the plants that it has created. If it is a wild plant and it grows only where you live and not where anybody else and you, your people, have used that plant from time out of mind in a certain way, that plant is then taken and a drug is made from it, then yes, you own the DNA of that plant. People can't just come and take that resource from you. At the very least, I, they I think so the... in the same way that people have said, you have been using cell lines from my mother or my grandmother to test these drugs and we aren't getting anything from it. And you can't just do that. You can't just use my mother's or grandmother's cells in this way. So it's not just about plants. It's about humans too. And who profits? And who has a right to profit? Oh, that was the point of conversation. I'm sorry? That's why, hence the question. Right. And so that's why I said legalese, because the question is a legal question, not a moral question, right? Well, as a Native Americans claiming, I mean, I think there's a couple, I know you've there's discussed this topic. On. Native American. There might be a Cherokee or an Anishinaabe or a Hopi. Which plants would be, I know that there's claims of the, these plants, that these are our plants, these, these you, know, you, you know, they're from our space. I've heard you talk about this before in other pod, on previous podcasts. I'm not uh-huh. sure what the terminology was that you used, but, and I couldn't remember. Uh-huh. Well, I have not but heard that. I have, not, I have not heard any uh, person of the indigenous peoples that I have been with lay claim to any plant. I have heard them say, this is how we use the plant. And if others come and use this plant in this way and use this plant to make drugs that then they then make millions of dollars on, then we deserve to get something too. I have heard that. Uh-huh. Nice. Which is a little different than what you're saying. Well, indirectly. I don't think can medicinal any, plants. I think anybody can lay a claim to own a wild place, and I think my experience with the indigenous people that I have had the honor to spend time with is that they are the last person, people, to even quite understand the concept of ownership. Understood. They understand being responsible for something and caring for it. 
which we link to ownership. Who can own the air? Who can own the air, exactly. Who can own the, own the earth? Who can own the plants? Who can own that the, the flowing right. waters? Right. It's a gift economy. It is a gift economy. Thanks, Susan. That was fun. Thanks for asking, Terry. And please tell um, Justine a happy birthday. I'll find another sweet card and send it your way. Okay, great. Thanks, Carol. Green blessings. Good night. All right. At this time, we have many callers on the line listening, and no one has pressed one to let us know that they have a question. Uh, we do have an email question, if you would like me to read that. Please. All right. Uh, let's see. Uh, hello, Susan. Thanks for taking my question. I have a planter's wart on the sole of my foot. Sometimes in the evening, it feels like something is eating into the sole of my foot. This has been happening more frequently lately, once or twice a week. It is quite painful when this happens, but otherwise, it does not bother me. What is a planter's wart? What causes it to be sporadically painful, and can I get rid of it? Thank you. A planter's wart is a wart, but it grows in instead of out. And usually, that stabbing pain comes from some kind of pressure that kind of presses against it in the foot. Um, but it can be a little hard to track down exactly what pressure does it. The modern medical cure for planters' warts is duct tape. Yes, you heard me right, duct tape. The planters' wart is completely covered by one or two layers of duct tape which is to remain on the foot for as long as possible, up to a month. And when removed, the planter's wart should be gone. It does require oxygen and, of course, all of the classic um, remedies against both plantar warts and risen or high warts that you can see, like a wart, um, involve using some kind of plant sap, from dandelion sap to fig sap to any kind of plant you have that has a lot of sap in it on the wart to do the same thing that the duct tape to, does, which is to cut off the oxygen and thus to kill the organism that's causing the wart. And that organism also grows when you are under stress, so the wart can actually grow, and that can be another source of pain that if you're under some stress which allows more of that wart to grow into you that you will feel that and that is quite painful. Green blessings. All right. Uh, we did have another caller. We do have another caller that has pressed one and has a question from the 313 area code. You are live on the air with Susan. Hi, Susan. Good evening. 
Good evening. This is Zara calling in again. Hey, Zara. I love you. I love you, too. Um, My question tonight, I'm sure there's many other people that go through this, but I'm having a really hard time with it. Um, There is someone in my life who has treated their body very poorly through drug and alcohol abuse, and they're now feeling the repercussions of it. And since I have all this medicine and I make all this medicine, then I feel like I need to provide this medicine for this person that I love. And they are refusing it and also really not being very nice about it. And I just, I wanted some advice as to like what I can do to feel okay with myself. First of all, I want to say I hear you. This is a person that you love and you want to take care of them. Yes. One of the ways that you want to show them that you love them and you care about them is to offer them the remedies and the medicines that you make, that you pour your love and your care into, and that you could love them and care for them in this way. And when they refuse these things, they are not just refusing those things, they are refusing your love and your care and you. And that hurts. Yes. Because we don't want our love to be refused and rejected. Yeah, Mm -hmm. we want to be loved, but that's really pretty secondary to wanting to be allowed to love. Mm -hmm. And it hurts when we lose love, but it hurts a lot more when we lose the right to love. Yes. So you're basically telling yourself that in order to be with this person, you have to stop loving them. Mm. But maybe they don't think of refusing your remedies as telling you that you can't love them. Okay. Totally get that it is true for you. But I think you can get that it might not be true for them. Yeah. And way to tell if somebody really wants our love and our care through our remedies is to let them ask. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right? I don't mean that you should stand next to somebody who is just like falling off a cliff and is unconscious and say, well, if they wanted help, they'd ask, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. No, I, I hear you on that. And, and this is what I've been doing for many, many years. 
now, and they have started drinking infusion occasionally. Um, but just because I make large amounts of it and keep it in the fridge, and there's no juice or any other things in there to drink. So There you go, right? Smart. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I... Uh, I'm... I'm really having a hard time with it because of how they treat me and how they talk to me and tell me that I'm not a healer and that I need to stop pretending that I'm a doctor. And it doesn't matter how much research that I do. Like, I'm I'm not smart enough and I don't really know. All right. Week two of your apprenticeship, Gordon and I sat you down and taught you how to do what? How to be insulted, is that correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. So what do you say when someone insults you? Do you remember? That may be true. You may be right. Mm-hmm. Or you say, I hear you. You think I should stop pretending to be a healer. Yes. Yes. And I've said these things and and, and that's why I need your advice as to like I'm I'm not you have to keep it's saying this. You have okay. to keep. This is not an argument that you are having. This is a mantra. Yes. You're not trying to win the argument. Yes. It doesn't matter what they think, unless you think it too. Okay. And the yeah. last thing. The last thing that you need to do is to get into an argument with them about it. Yes. Because that gives more credence to what they're doing and saying. And let's just walk ourselves through this, okay? Suppose that you are pretending to be a healer. So could you tell me how well this pretense is working? I would say it's working very well, yes? Well, I've been healing myself over and over again. Exactly. So you've been having good success at your pretense to be a healer. And others are starting to buy that story, too, so that your story of pretending to be a healer is also being acknowledged by others. So um, what's the problem with pretending to be a healer? What does it say at the beginning of Healing Wise? It says we're all pretending, doesn't it? Everyone is a healer. Everyone is a healer and we're all pretending to be healers. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I know that I've only gotten this far as 
because of the plants and because of my relationship with the plants and that I can deal with all of these insults and refusals of love because the plants will always be there for me. That's exactly right. They will. So I just continue to nourish myself more and to try and take more time to just be to be alone and that sounds very wise okay that sounds like a very very wise sane healthy plan okay thank you I love you I love you too Green blessings. Good night. Good night. All right. Um, At this time, we do not have a caller that has pressed one to let us know they have a question. So I'd like to remind everyone listening, if you do have a question, please press one to let us know that you would like to speak with Susan. Susan, would you like another... Let's just say for the world to be in that there are no problems. Indeed. Indeed. Let us take a moment to to really appreciate the state of no problems. Ah. We do have a problem. Well, not so much a problem, but a question, another one that has come in on email. Would you like to hear that one? Yeah. Okay. All righty. It says, I have read that Artemisia vulgaris has been used for treatment of malaria because it is a lysosomal antiviral. Have you heard of or had experience with Artemisia vulgaris as an antiviral? Thank you. The Artemisia that is an antiviral is Artemisia annua, not the vulgaris. And um, for a long time, decades, herbalists who have traveled to uh, areas of the world where there is malaria have taken with them capsules of Artemisia annua, also called Sweet Annie, and taken them prophylactically to help prevent malaria. A Chinese scientist, um, Dr. Yu, has spent 30 years of her life working with Artemisia annua because Artemisia annua told her that they were going to change the world. And in fact, what she was able to do was to isolate Artemisin a compound from Artemisia annua, which kills malaria. I believe she received a Nobel Prize for this work. And yes, it was recent. I've never worked with Sweet Annie. Is that where where does it typically grow? I'm sorry? Artemisia annua is a cultivator. 
means, yeah, anybody can grow it. It's really easy to grow from seed. Wow, interesting. All right. Uh, not any listeners at this time that have pressed one. Um, and we do have another email question, if you would like that one. Great. Okay, let's see. Um, a few weeks back, I listened to a virtual seminar you gave with Pam Montgomery. You talked about cannabis and anxiety. You said something about the cannabis not causing anxiety or panic, but rather revealing to the person ingesting it what is actually in their reality. This was very intriguing. Can you speak more about this aspect of cannabis? And can it be used in a way intentionally without causing panic? Thank you. My experience is that cannabis is a magnifier. There are substances, plants, that we can ingest which actually change us. If you've been around anybody who's had more than one drink, and for some people just one drink, you can see personality changes caused by the alcohol. Certainly, if you're sitting with someone who has taken mescaline or psilocybin, they have been changed by that. So um, there's a lot of room in us to be changed by plants. When we eat, we're changed by plants inside. Would you read the beginning part of the question again for me? Uh, sure. Um, I listened to a virtual seminar you gave where you talked about cannabis and anxiety. You anxiety. Something okay. about that, was, that was the part I wanted to be clear on, that, that they were also really interested in the anxiety part. Because that's part of what you hear a lot is, oh, no, I can't, you know, I can't ingest cannabis because it makes me paranoid. And so observing people, I have observed that it doesn't make people paranoid, but it very much magnifies any paranoia that they already have. So her question then is, oh, okay, so if I know this, can I actually use cannabis in this way? Well, of course. That's what self-awareness is is that when we know something gives us self-awareness, then we use it for self-awareness. And it's one of the reasons that a culture of alcohol um, doesn't promote self-awareness, but a culture of cannabis can. So when we look even through history, you know, Bacchanals, right, Mardi Gras, these are not times when people are showing, you know, a lot of self-awareness. But we look at um, the kinds of ceremonies that um, come along with peyote or psilocybin, and we see something very different, as well as with cannabis. So... In Abundantly Well, I talk about mind-altering plants, 
in deep medicine, and I talk about how we wouldn't want somebody to cut us open with uh, their pocket knife. If we're going to have surgery, we want it in sterile conditions with somebody who's trained, who has um, sterile scalpel. And the same thing with deep medicine with plants. You don't want to just, you know, go larking off and uh, smoke a bunch of cannabis and say, oh, my gosh, I'm getting paranoid. How do I deal with this? You want to really um, work with a person who can guide you, who can help you, um, even if it's yourself, even if you're going to write a script for yourself or notes for yourself or uh, create, you know, uh, a set or a setting for yourself. Lock yourself into a certain room, you know, read a certain thing. Um so that you have the focused intention. Uh, during the years when I did breath work, breath release, energy transformation, healing, a big part of the breath work was when we sat in pairs and talked about what our intention for that breath work was before we engage in it. Now, that isn't a mind-altering class, but it's certainly a mind-altering breathing technique. And the creators of it didn't want people just doing it like we did when we were little girls and twirling each other around and making each other dizzy and fall on the ground and see things. No, they said, you can do this breathing pattern and it's going to make you, you know, dizzy and fall on the ground and see things, but you're going to have an intention. Susan, are you still on the line with us? All right. It looks like I can see Susan, but we cannot hear her. Ah, here we are. Oh, there you are. Oh, good. All right. All right. That was an odd little glitch there. Yeah, you just disappeared. We could see you. I could see you. have anyone with their hand raised and I do not have another email question either um, so I'm looking to see our guest has not joined uh, the queue yet um, well I noticed now that the snow has melted that there's chickweed growing under the back edge of the deck it's pretty lush we recall that the snow was a little slow on coming on um, in the early part of the winter, and so I was harvesting a lot of chickweed back in November and having big chickweed salads back then. It was growing so lushly and beautifully out in the gardens, and I was even able to keep enough of that chickweed in the refrigerator to have a chickweed salad for Christmas Day. That's right, the end of December because it just, the chickweed keeps nicely, you have to, you know, like anything, go through it and take out the ones that are yellowing or starting to to yuck up. Um, And here it is, chickweed again. Now, I've been eating little bits of chickweed all winter, to tell you the truth, because I'm always careful to throw some chickweed seeds when you harvest it and, and keep it in the refrigerator for long amounts of time. It actually continues to flower and to set seeds, so there will always be chickweed seeds in the bottom of your chickweed salad bag, and I throw those seeds into my houseplants. So all winter long, my houseplants 
are producing little bits of chickweed for me to just have, you know, a little bite of wild now and then. But I was very excited to see it under the deck today when I was um, out with the goats. And I'm going to go tomorrow and look in the garden and see if it's come back in the garden. Those of you who live where it's already warmer probably are already harvesting lots of chickweed, and it's one of the earliest plants. Garlic mustard, of course, has overwintered, and you should be able to find some garlic mustard. The stuff that's overwintered here is really beaten down by the snow. I think it will be several weeks yet before we'll have any garlic mustard for salad. Um, it just all looks like, oh, mercy on me. But it will, you know, start to grow some new leaves. And um, I've been keeping an eye out uh, where the nettle will come up, but it hasn't come up yet. I know uh, people who are just a little warmer than us are already seeing those first little, little bitty shoots of the nettle, and they're so purple when they come out. You're up in the mountains, Sarah Ellen, so you're a little warmer than I am, a little colder than I am. What do you think? Um, well, we're actually not too high of an elevation. It's kind of a prairie state, but we are in a hilly area. I think it's a tiny bit warmer than your area, and I'm very excited to go see if the nettle is starting to come up. I mentioned, I think, to you last I was there that I had not yet um, put my eyes on nettle around me. And wouldn't you know it, one of the first plants said hello um, on Thanksgiving Day was nettle here. So I'm going to go out and look for her tomorrow, as a matter of fact. All right. <laughs> oh, such wonderful excitement to have all of our green friends returning home. Well, I do so, see our is, is Rachel here with us yet? Yes, I do see Rachel is here with us. Rachel Carlevale is the founder and director of education of the Ganjasana Plant Medicine School, where she leads cannabis yoga ceremonies and facilitates continuing education courses and trainings on regenerative farming, Ganja Yoga, YTT, Permaculture, and Biodynamics. Speaking on behalf of the natural world, Rachel honors the plants and life in the soil by transmitting their messages of well-being for all, regenerating body, mind, and soul for the collective. Rachel is a certified mindfulness educator and a certified yoga instructor with an academic foundation in plant and soil science, receiving high honors bachelor of science degree from the University of Massachusetts in Ayurveda, women's health, and ethnobotanical traditions. Rachel works with many plant allies. She has a deep passion for cannabis, hemp, and ayahuasca. She is also the founder of the Green Tent, Women's Cannabis Circles, and contributes to Graham Magazine with a cultivation column. She offers her gifts by the ocean coast of Maine, where she lives in alignment with the natural rhythms of the sun, moon, and stars, grows living soil, regenerative cannabis, and vermicompost. Welcome to the show, Rachel. Thank you so much, Susan. Can you hear me? I can. What kind of worms do you have? Oh. 
What's that? Oh, I have uh, some red wigglers right now. Red wigglers. I love my red wigglers. You know, I keep them in my compost pile even outside in the winter. Oh, good. Yeah, they can I have, survive. I learned that they, can, that they can survive even these heavy-duty East Coast winters. And people look at my compost and they say, oh, my gosh, girl, what makes your compost like this? They say, worms. It's the worms that make my compost so beautiful. Oh, now wonderful. I, yeah, I'm you know, I start out with, good, you know, good stuff from the goats and the rabbits, so I don't have any stinky stuff from birds. But, oh, right. the worms are just so beautiful. So um, you do so much exciting work. Uh, what led you to the path that you're pursuing right now? Well, I think it really began from a young age. I always say my very first plant ally was the dandelion and having a, a battle with my family about trying to keep them alive on our lawn and then really having that lead down to a whole path of exploring plant medicine. It wasn't something passed down to me and, and my family and something I really had to discover and explore. And um, as I grew older, cannabis really became a plant ally for me, one that I cultivated and, and cultivated me as well. And so that kind of led me on the path to want to understand both the science behind the the cannabis plant medicine, but also the spirit and working with the spirit of the plants. Mm. Wonderful. And cannabis, I'm going to suspect, led you to understand that what you really needed to study was the soil. Exactly. Uh, you you nailed the he- the nail right on the head, Susan. Um, and, and understanding the plants, it really brought me to a relationship with the soil and actually the soil food web and, like you said, the worms and really getting into uh, vermicompost lately in particular because I just find the worms so fascinating and focusing on the farming practices because a lot of us work with our herbal allies and if we're wild crafting, I think that's wonderful, but if we're harvesting them, if we're um, cultivating them ourselves, understanding the life in the soil that is bringing the life into the the plants and the herbs which we're working with. It's what really counts. And it, it, it does. What, it's what made me stop digging. Yeah. You know, yeah, I kind I of love- I kind of grew up with, you know, the, the way you're supposed to garden. You go out there and you dig, now you double dig. You gotta get right, in there and you gotta like turn that soil up. You know, and the more I spent time outside watching, the less I saw that nature ever did that. She might tear a tree exactly. up by the roots and expose some of that stuff, but she didn't like turn the soil over. She just kept throwing stuff on top. Still does. Yeah, I I think that I think that's something else really important you mentioned is observing nature. And so when we observe nature and see that she uses what we call principles like polycultures, you know, growing many different various species together or um, cover cropping where there'll be other cover crops in relation to one particular plant that's growing. And um, as you said, it just falls on top of what we might call mulching in organic farming, whereas our traditional agriculture that we see today for many plants and especially what we're seeing in the hemp industry 
in the U.S. here is just the monocropping, the one single species grown in rows. And as you mentioned, we'll never see nature. There's no straight lines in nature, right? <laughs> no straight lines in nature. <laughs> For a while, I had a really great job, which allowed me to go into um, homes that were caring for people who had mild mental disturbances and to make gardens with them. And none of them wanted to make straight lines. I got in a lot of flack from the people I reported to that my gardens didn't have straight lines. Oh, wow. Yes, that's, I, lo- I love that concept, too, about what you're saying in, in uniting gardening with a mental disturbance, almost like a trauma-informed therapy in getting our hands back in the soil. Um, there's been a lot of research out, I'm sure you're familiar with, that says it's very beneficial for us to get dirty, to get our hands in the soil, and especially in this day and age of the time period we're living through, I always love to advocate for inoculating our own microbiome with, with the soil, with getting dirty and um allowing the microbiology in the soil to activate our own microbiology. It can do things like release serotonin in the brain that makes us happy and connecting with the mycelial and fungal networks, um, you know, helps our own networks and helps our immune system increase and has so many wonderful positive benefits for the body. So true, so true. And I'm always amazed when I'm in a state where they make them say what they've used to grow the cannabis to see the chemicals that so many people feel they need to use to grow cannabis, which I consider a pretty hardy crop. But I guess Mm -hmm. if your soil isn't um, good enough for it, then it, like all other crops, becomes chemically dependent. What have you found about that? Yeah, absolutely. And I I have been listening into you, Susan. I was hearing you speak about cannabis a little bit, so I was really intrigued um, when you said cannabis is a magnifier. And I just couldn't agree more that it absolutely magnifies. You know, Bob Marley says, the herb will reveal yourself to yourself. However, I also want to add to that conversation that a lot of times if people are experiencing symptoms of stress or anxiety, with using cannabis, more often than not, it's the pesticides that were used in the process or the fungicides or the harvesting methods where maybe the plant has now grown PM or powdery mildew um, within the, the drying or curing process. So a lot of these, what I might call poor and degenerative farming practices that are allowed within the industry um, are doing a disservice to the not just the plants but to the people that are using them. Um, we see right now in the industry with cannabis in particularly that a lot of people aren't even using soil. They're trying to bypass, bypass Mother Nature completely, bypass the soil food web, and really rely on this old, outdated paradigm of agriculture, which is really that NPK model of focusing on the nutrients and um, not focusing on the soil food web. So growers are doing all sorts of things from using rock wool to cocoa coir to, to cultivate their plants in. Yes, I remember my brother who was an organic gardener and very innovative, innovative and was selling to the garden market 
in Oregon decided he was going to grow things hydroponically and organically. And um, I visited his greenhouse, and it was lush. You know, he had these huge loose leaf lettuce plants and parsley and all this stuff growing, you know, until the whole thing crashed. Oh, no. And I, I, when it crashed, I mean, there was white fly and aphid in there like I would not believe. Yeah, it's because uh, of, oh, it's aphid and white fly come as soon as your plants are really nutritionally deficient. Mm-hmm. They're not just, uh, you know, fiends sent from the devil. They're part of the web of life to come to tell you, check it out. Your plants need help. Right. <laughs> yes. Yeah, important to keep that stable ecosystem with the plants and back to the worms and, you know, having animals part of that system and the compost, the microbiology part of the system and really creating a closed loop system of farming where all of your outputs are going right back into your own system. So this brings us to your ceremony. Tell us more about it, your cannabis ceremony. Yeah, so I, I because I was listening in, I wanted to remark on a couple other comments that you oh, had made. Thank you. I'm so happy. Um, yes. Yeah, it was really, really interesting to listen to you. And Susan, I don't know if you remember, but I first met you and had the pleasure of witnessing your teachings um, when you came to the Women's Red Earth uh, Herbal Gathering out in Boulder, Colorado. And That's you spoke your name about is yeah. So I yes. was I was um, leading our cannabis ceremony there, but I was mostly excited to hear you speak. It was a couple years ago, I believe, and speaking about women's health. And so there was a woman on here who was asking about I believe it was called tubal litigation, and you were saying, well, no no female I know has been happy after receiving that surgery. And to go back to the ceremony, I first, uh, about almost 10 years ago now, was in the emergency room and was told I needed a complete hysterectomy, and I was in my early 20s at the time. Um, And that really allowed me to pause in my life trajectory and redefine my relationship with my own body, and in doing that, redefining the relationship with the plants. So... For myself, I did not end up getting a hysterectomy or surgery. I had severe bleeding with fibroid tumors, and so my body would not stop bleeding. I had over two blood transfusions. That's how much blood I had lost. So it was quite a dire situation. Yeah. Um, But I really leaned into the plant medicine, but it wasn't just taking a plant and having that stop the bleeding. It was a complete lifestyle change in the way and uh, in incorporating, as you also mentioned, breath work was so important. Um, in yoga, we also call breath work pranayama, the way in which we breathe. Yoga, the asanas, the way in which we hold our bodies, meditation and mindfulness, uh, all of that had to come together in order for me to heal my own body. So that's really where these ceremonies were born was from the roots of my own healing. Mm, yes. And the breath work I'm talking about is not pranayama. It's breath release, energy transformation, healing, B-R-E-T-H, breath work. 
It's a oh, specific okay. yeah, kind of. Yeah, more about that. Yeah, it's not pranayama at all. And it's a specific, one specific breathing that's done for an extended period. Oh, lovely. Yes. Right. I, um... but, so, but I am not countering what you're saying. I think that it's, that it's very important for people to understand that um, it's not just about taking an herb, but it's about getting that herb into your bloodstream and then getting what's in your bloodstream into your cells and then having enough oxygen to burn it once it's in your cell. Yeah, the oxygen all comes back to the oxygen. Absolutely. So that really led to wanting to share these practices with others um, in, in holding ceremony and through education about the plant, about how to cultivate the plant, um, just getting back to our roots of allowing people to hold the worms. We would do things like meditate, holding the red wigglers, letting letting their little bodies feel the marma points on our hands and sitting in meditation and just really getting back to those ancient practices of working with nature. Oh, I love that. I never even considered letting people hold the worms. What a great idea. Yeah, you know, it turned a couple people off, but they were able to move past their fears. And, you know, if you're going to work with a plant, really establishing a relationship with all of the little creatures beneath our feet that make up the soul of the soil. Magnificent. So um, is the cannabis ceremony different from the gun just on the ceremony? So, yeah, the Ganjasana ceremony is uh, the cannabis ceremony. So the way of which we work with the cannabis plant is very intentional. And it's interesting. I was having a conversation with somebody today about the terms uh, medicinal and recreational use and saying, is there even a concept of recreation or is it always medicinal? Um, Because if even somebody is using it, quote-unquote recreationally if it's to wind down at the end of the day or find a sense of calming or peace or relaxation it's still in a sense a, a medicine for our body or bringing us into some type of homeostasis or balance in some way so the ceremony is really to set our intention of why we're working with the plant medicine um, what i found was that a lot of my younger life in using cannabis was quite abusive of the plant. I had no guide or direction. I didn't know what the genetic cultivar was that I was smoking or even maybe where it came from or how it was farmed. And so it wasn't until later in my college years and undergrad um, studying with different various tribes and cultures throughout the world and just seeing how we can see the plants as a sentient being and use these practices of meditation and mindfulness to really quiet our minds enough to be able to listen to the plants and enough to be able to have that reverence and respect in building a reciprocal relationship. So the ceremony is really to instill that honor for the plant so that we can co-create on this life's journey together. How lovely. What a beautiful idea to help people 
into that in that way. And you're living in a time when this is um, becoming something that you actually can talk about and don't have to fear too much. The place where you're living in Massachusetts has basically legalized cannabis for most uses. Do you feel fear? Do you feel like you're going to get in trouble for what you're doing? Um, Right now in this moment, I would say no. But to go back on that in the past, um, so I grew up in Massachusetts. I went to UMass Amherst. And at the time, um, so I went there from 2006 to 2010, um, at the time it was illegal to research cannabis, but it was illegal to obtain the seeds of which to research with. So I was going to study with Dr. Lyle Craker, who is a great um, cannabis expert there, but uh, because that was not available, I instead had um, went to Peru to study ayahuasca. And so ayahuasca is legal in that country. However, coming back here to the U.S., I was very timid and shy to speak about my experiences because back in 2010, over 10 years ago, it was not very much talked about or accepted. Now, today, ayahuasca is on the cover of Time magazine and Forbes magazine, you know, very well-known publications that would never – dare speak about plant spirit or plant medicine 10 years ago. Um, However, I do also want to note that, you know, we still have people who are incarcerated and in prison for cannabis, and we still, it's still not federally legal. Um, It's just a state right at the moment. So there are precautions and there are gray areas that we operate within, Um, but this medicine has always been here. You know, before even us humans, perhaps, we're not quite sure the verdict is out on that one yet. But, um, you know, I think the medicine is here to stay. We've we've co-created with the, the people, have cultivated it because we need it. You know, we, we seek out and we search this medicine because the people have always been using it. We've always needed it. And it's something that I've put my own on the line to to help cultivate and to help build these what we call an industry today but you know I I don't have any fear right now in working with the plant I'm happy to talk about it I'm happy to share education about the cannabis plant and what I know and just allow that to grow because I think we need to normalize the and um, legalize and liberate her yes yes and I hope that New York finally comes to its senses, you know, as some legislature said, well, everybody just go to Massachusetts. Why don't we keep the business at home? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And I mean, they're right. Right. It's not, not far drive over there to Massachusetts, especially not from where we are <laughs> in the Hudson yeah, River Valley. New York, New York has been really interesting. They, um, they took all their CBD edibles off the shelves, which was really funny move, in my opinion. Right. <laughs> but uh, yes, New York has always been very um, kind of a, uh, 
very prissy about the whole thing. It to, and to this point, you cannot get a named variety legally in New York. You can be, you can get cannabis legally, but you can only get THC, CBD, or THC and CBD. That's it. Yeah, and it's such a disservice to the plant, especially to the genetic, the NYC diesel, which comes out of New York City. Right. Right. Yeah. And then, to me, it's one of the great things about cannabis is that you have this enormous variability. I was reading today about kava root and the hundreds and hundreds of cultivars of kava root there are and how the indigenous healers will use kava root to ally pain and they will use a specific cultivar a specific part of the root and prepare it in a specific way for each different pain. And cover while it's not related to cannabis, works through the cannabinoid pain relief system. It doesn't work through the opioid system. Interesting. I didn't realize that about kava. And it's a strictly cultivated plant. We don't think there are any wild ones left. Right. Yeah, it's, it's kind of the same parallel with cannabis. And when we look at heirloom genetic cultivars and original land races, it's really difficult to find those pure land races, but also being able to see all of the variation, like you said, everything from the terpenes that we can isolate. I know myrcene has been a really popular terpene to help with pain, and linalool has been a really popular terpene within cannabis. It's also in lavender, of course, but has all those same type of relaxing and healing properties. So there's we're just at the tip of the iceberg for understanding what each of these genetic cultivars can really do for us. So it would, to me, seem like it would serve our community more to be able to educate them and let them know what exactly it is, what type of plant they have, you know, rather than label it for this is THC or this is CBD. <laughs> it's like calling all apples Granny Smith and Macintosh. Or just calling them apples. Apple. Yep, and not exactly. even recognizing that there's different kinds of apples. Like the person who said to me, what's wrong with my apple pie? And I, I you know, was at her house and I said, oh, well, you used apples that don't get soft when they cook. Right. Right. Yeah, she's like, she used like, you know, red delicious apples. And I, no matter how long you bake a red delicious apple in the pie, it's just going to stay. It's bread to be right. crisp. <laughs> so... <laughs> It's like, yeah, you got to have, you know, have a idea about it. What I find for my pain relief with cannabis is it's not about the THC CBD at all. It is only about the terpenes, and that those terpenes act on me like the little notches in a key, and some of them just fit right in my pain relief keyhole, and wham, the pain is gone. And some of them fit in and magnify it. Interesting, yeah, and. Oh, I really need to have the name of the of you know what what I'm choosing because it's going to make a big difference in how it affects me. Absolutely. So, 
do you combine all the things that you do when you teach people? Like, is it kind of like a a yoga, meditation, mindfulness, biodynamics, uh, uh, ganja ceremony all at once, or are these really separate things that you do? It depends. Um, Generally, it is happening all at once. So the ceremonies will start off with mindfulness, sending our bodies into our nervous system. So looking at, as you know, with breath work, moving from that fight or flight into that rest and digest, the parasympathetic nervous system. So we'll do things like drumming and rattling and um, meditation to bring us into that state before entering the cannabis ceremony. So before communing with the plant medicine, just taking the time and the intention to get to that space. And then we'll have the plant ceremony looking at honoring all of the elements of the plant. Um, you know, we could see the herb itself as the element of earth. And when we bring the fire to the herb, it's the element of fire for transformation and change. And using a chalice, we'll oftentimes have water in there to honor the element of water in the chalice. And the smoke is like air sending our prayers up to the cosmos. So just taking a moment and honoring all of our elements and our ancestors and then moving into the yoga portion, which is a guided movement. And so participants are welcome to follow along um, or stay in any particular pose that feels great for them. So I encourage people to tap into their intuition and see what would work best for them. Um, So kind of incorporating all of the different aspects together. And then I also offer educational workshops and trainings on each specific subject. So, for example, we just had a class last week called The Soul of Soil, and that was just information about how to build soil from scratch, how to work with soil, and understanding the soil food web. All right. Fantastic. And one of the really wonderful things that COVID has done for a great many people is to turn them into gardeners. Yes, I love that, the Victory Garden. Well, you know, I always say one of the very best things about having a lot of people go out and have a garden is that they begin to appreciate farmers a lot more. Absolutely, yeah. My meditation teacher always says, chop wood and carry water. (laughs) Well, it's not just that. You know, you go out there and you think, wow, you know, I'm going to plant this tomato plant. I'm going to get all these tomatoes. And then suddenly the worms move in and this moves in and that moves in. And you're like, golly, gee, you know, I put in all this time, all this effort and all this money, and I got, what, one tomato? Right. (laughs) Right. Exactly. It's a lot of time and money and effort. But with that said, it is also brings a sense of sovereignty and freedom that we don't have to rely on anybody else and we can produce that one tomato all by ourselves or, you know, with the support of our community and our community garden. So I really love that aspect of gardening is that it's so empowering that, you know, you grew that from a seed or from a cutting if you're using that and being able to just take ownership over in um, the plants that you can cultivate and knowing that you have the power to do it. 
And people say, oh, I was a real failure, I, you know. And I said, no, 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 you can't be a failure as a gardener. If you do it and then you stop doing it, you still succeeded because you learned you don't want to do that. Exactly. <laughs> and that's, that's valid. But not, not everybody, you know, it's one of the reasons that I really got into the weeds. It was like, it's like oh, my gosh, you know. Well, they want me to spend all my time out here, you know, with these plants. I'm just going to let these other plants grow, and I'll eat them. Right. Yes, and get to work locally with what plants are growing around you. Well, we have somehow talked our entire time away. It's hard to believe. And we've come to the part of the show where I ask you, what you would like to leave in the hearts and the minds of everybody who's been listening to you tonight. Thank you. I would love to leave everyone with uh, planting the seed of empowerment of if you are interested in gardening or connecting with the plant spirit world or the soil underneath your feet to just get started. It doesn't matter where you live, if it's urban or if you don't have any land, um, you can have a small container garden. There's many different ways to work with the plants and I'm happy to help anyone, but I just want to plant that seed in everyone's heart that you have the power to do it. So feel free to lean on your community for support. And if they want to get in touch with you, how can they get in touch with you? Sure. Um, you can find me at uh, Ganjasana on social media, and it's G-A-N-J-A-S-A-N-A, and it's just com for our website. So please feel free to reach out. Ganjasana. All right. And all the regular websites, social media places. Oh, thank you so much for taking the time to share your journey and what you're doing with us. Thank you so much, Susan. It was my pleasure. As you know, I believe that we are reweaving the healing cloak of the ancients. And I want to thank you for all of those green, strong hemp fibers that you added to that healing cloak tonight and throughout your life and with all of your work. It takes all of us to reweave this healing cloak. And thank you, Sarah Ellen, and thank you also for helping in my personal goal of restoring herbal medicine to its rightful place as people's medicine. Good night, Rachel. Carla Valle. Good night, Sarah Ellen. We'll hear more from you about Poison Ivy next week. Good night, Justine, and good night, everybody. Green blessings.